so this is what I hope is going to be the very first episode, which has got this great complicated sound setup, if you can see it. Um, it's going to be the special Halloween episode because Halloween is awesome. <laughs> We're doing the Halloween tree from 1993, directed by Mario Paluzzo, who has done almost nothing <laughs> like the new kids on the block show. <laughs> so just keep that in mind. I could not find any accolades for this man. And then stand by me directed by Rob Reiner in 1986. Both are based on a short story or a short novel. The Halloween tree is based on the Halloween tree from 1972. Stand by me is uh, based on the short story, the body by Stephen King. I should say Halloween trees by Ray Bradbury um, and he wrote it in 1972. And then Stand By Me is based on The Body, which is from 1982 and the collection Different Seasons, which I think all of Different Seasons has been made into a movie at this point, which is really impressive. As it should. That's a great I, short story collection. I think it's only two that have and two that have. No, Apt Pupil has. Yep. And the one Shawshank's been done. Yeah. But isn't there a short story about the doctor who eats himself? Uh, I was just reading an article when I, after I watched the movie. It was like two have not been made. So. I thought, but I thought that's what apt pupil is from. Brent, 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 that was a creepy one. That Brendan Fraser? No, that's a different movie about Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> Bring it back to the Nazis. Always. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. It's Nazi season. So I'm going to ask you to each introduce yourself. We'll start my like counterclockwise. So we'll start with Raz, and then we'll go do do do. Would you like me to say like who you are, what you want people to know about you? Would you like me to say, like... Who you are, what you want people to know about you. <clears throat> What's your favorite animated movie? <sighs> yes. Well, we're going to get to that. Oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> I meant to say my phrase. <laughs> my name is Raz Cunningham, and I am a filmmaker and content creator. My name is Aiden La Liberty. I am an actor, writer, and filmmaker. Me too. I'm not kidding. <laughs> and um, I love Stephen King a lot. My name is Reka Rocha, and... I'm an educator. Um, I also work for uh, a micro nonprofit called Frequency Writers. I serve on the board for that and uh, occasionally teach some classes. I've also, uh, in my spare time, do a lot of gardening. That seems relevant. I don't know. <laughs> you do do a lot of gardening. A lot. Uh, I'm Mel Rainsberger. I am one of four, like the Borg. Uh, so I'm going to ask you what your latest animated, well, yeah, I'll ask some questions and we'll get into the, the topic. What is the latest animated film or like show you've seen? Shows are much bigger nowadays, so I figure I'll include that. You don't have to go in order. No. Go ahead. Oh, come on. I'm like trying. Yeah, without missing a beat. Um, the most recent animated. Uh, let's see. No, I don't want to count that. I want to talk. I, I, there's a there's a movie that I saw recently. What the heck? Somebody else can go. Yeah, can I, I'm gonna try it. to think of it because I cannot yeah. think of it. I think because there's a lot that you we all watch like on Facebook, YouTube, wherever, and it just it's hard to differentiate. It's just kind of a pretty steady stream. Yeah, I'm really that's like, my theory. Was Most recently, I swear I think this is true, was that Disney movie, Pixar movie about the girl with all the emotions. Oh wait, that's the one I saw recently, Inside Out. Oh, that's it. That's yes. what it was. Inside Out. All right. That's the most recent one. That was. I was touched by that that was very sweet and before that probably was another pixar it was probably minions 2 i love the minions whatever i don't care that much um i do i i don't i here's one 
what I like about it is like they capture the id energy of any young and you know person or yeah. creature like that that sort of impulse towards destruction but yeah. in the sweetest way like yeah. they're ju- it's just energy kind of bursting outward it's and it's not looking for an end it's not seeking an end so it's it can be destructive or constructive it's just energy exploding outwards yeah. and i think that's adorable and you know the the groove figure in the minions um steve carell character i thought he was fun enough like they could have done more like to develop why he is exactly the way he is but I thought it was satisfying. Not as smart as Inside Out, though. Yeah. But you, Razzical? I think, actually, the last animated film that I saw was Moana. <gasps> Ooh. Which... It's going back. Yeah, well, I mean, again, we watched it again. Oh, were you ta- I thought it had to be something we hadn't seen, no, like, for the first time. No, it's the latest time. one you've watched. Oh, you yeah. could have watched it 50 million times. Oh, okay, well, I already messed up. Yeah, Moana, because we watched that together. So it was Moana, and then last night I ended up watching... Uh, I finished the second season of Big Mouth on Netflix, and then I also watched an anime on Netflix called Lost Song, which is really interesting, which is about, like, uh, the first couple episodes were a little scattered, but then it got much better when it was like, oh, this is what the show's about. Um, And uh, Anyway, songs have magical properties, and if you sing them the right way, they do magical things. But the problem I had with it was... And this very Japanese, like almost like they've moved on from this, but no one told the studio. Uh, there would be characters who would say the same things every episode, like "That's impossible! Oh, that's scientifically impossible!" Like they catchphrases. Yeah, exactly. And they just spent like three episodes stating the rules over and over again. Whereas, like just before this, I finished all of the Dragon Prince on Netflix, which is really good. And they like they state the rules, like maybe an ever you kind of figure it out as you see it. Mm-hmm. You're not being told what the rules are you're being shown and i like that i watched all of hilda last week and that was amazing loved hilda hilda's like oh i saw the ads for adventure that. time plus over the garden wall hmm. it's really weird you've never seen that with elijah wood it's like a 10 episode like like mini series that cartoon network did yep. it's like this boy dressed kind of like a gnome elijah wood's character and his brother are like trying to get back home and it's all these like weird lands they go to so they like meet a village made of like people that are pumpkins and it's all very surreal it's got christopher lloyd in it it came out a couple years ago it's so dark and sad but it's really good um yeah i think that i think inside out was um what i liked about it is that it uses animation to do something that is otherwise hard right right you couldn't tell you couldn't use conventional film to really talk about the emotional um, production inside a, a preteen girl, right, yeah. and if that you did, crazy. that would be fucking weird, yeah. right? Like that's a little yeah, invasive. That poor kid, yeah, <laughs> that would be, yeah, not right. So uh, that was part of the draw, I think, of that movie, um, and you know that each of those emotions are both at odds with each other, but also working in tandem. It was cool too because it was a comment on like the stigma of not just like mental illness but of being sad like right. I was so glad that it made it like made the point to be like being sad is good let yourself feel these things like it's not yeah I thought that was that was mm-hmm. awesome and the yeah. the moment where Joy realizes like the purpose of sadness because the whole time she just shortchanges mm-hmm. sadness the whole time and you're like oh my god what is she gonna like mm-hmm. you know but mm-hmm. as the audience the whole time you're like yeah what is the point of sadness right, I th- 
Right. I think it, it, there's something. Um, I worked with a guy once who wrote a book called Against Sat- Against Happiness, and he got savaged in the New York Times book review by um, Garrison Keillor, of all people. It was the weirdest oh. book review. It was like a really super bitchy Garrison Keillor being um, just like, fuck this guy and his anti-happiness. But what the guy was trying to get at is that to pursue happiness as the end goal of every fucking thing in your life is abysmal. Yeah, it is. That that what happiness when what happiness is and what kind of allow you have to make space for happiness rather than just like crush out every other feeling you have so that right. happiness is the last man standing on the field right it's not a destination it's right it's the way you go to the destination is what happiness should be it's, yeah, yeah very so i think there's something you could say kind of anti-american about that film that i really like yeah i will say i thought it was very interesting that they had like happy and sadness were two the, the two very distinct emotions, but then it was fear, anger, and disgust. Yeah. Disgust was an interesting emotion yeah. to choose. Yeah. And when happiness yeah, and sadness was... were, oh joy, I'm sorry, joy and sadness were out and mm. stuck. You know, they were away from from central processing or whatever it was. I forget what it was called. I kind of forget the story. Um, fear, anger, and disgust started making illogical decisions because there was no proper balance. But like the decision to run away, that was anger. That wasn't like sadness wouldn't choose to run away. Sadness would just Stay wallow. Yeah, and so would happiness because they're very stationary. Mm-hmm. But these transitional feelings—anger, fear, and disgust—they don't really they can't react. They need they need everything else to kind of function. Which I yeah, but no, no, none of them operate kind of in a vacuum. I thought mm-hmm. that was pretty smart. Uh, what is the first animated film you remember seeing it doesn't have to be like the one that came out like when you were three but it's the one you remember um i remember very vividly uh it was sleeping beauty and i thought especially as someone who's colorblind the fight over the the three uh flora fauna and merryweather fighting over the colors so good was not only excellently well done but i kind of felt like that's how my brain interprets color Mm. it's pink no it's green no it's blue um for me i think the first animated film i remember seeing was uh was tarzan it was actually the first movie i saw in the theaters too because when it came out i was four i think i just turned four um because it was 99 i think that movie came out yeah and uh it was or no i was i was three i think i was three i don't know that doesn't matter but um yeah it was really it was i remember the theater was too loud actually because like I had like weird auditory like sensitivities when I was little, but like, yeah, but it was, I think specifically like my parents were like, oh yeah, they actually apologized to the people because the sound was too loud or something. But um, yeah, I think it was, I think it was Tarzan, which kind of like is lame because it was like, to me, not one of the better Disney Renaissance movies. So it's like, of course, of all of them, I saw Tarzan first, but then kind of worked backwards from there. As the resident old person, I remember um, Snow White. And I was friggin' terrified. I think my mom had to take me out of the movie theater because I was so scared. But I do remember that. And the other movie that I remember also being tra- traumatized by was Bambi. As Ooh. soon as the mother gets shot, I swear to God, I can't remember. I was so traumatized, I can't remember the rest of the film. But um, in terms of movies that I actually made it through, um, the first, the ones that I really stuck with me were like, Oh, um, the one with the mouse. Oh, the rescuers. I loved that one. I could get through the whole thing. It wasn't too, too scary. It was actually pretty funny. Um, and there were mice in it. And, you know, they were really cute. 
animated movies if you if you count claymation where the oh, yeah, um yeah. the uh rudolph the red-nosed reindeer and yes. and the um heat miser and the his the, brother the year without a santa claus the year without a santa claus those really stuck with me um in terms of like help <laughs> animated <laughs> animated shows that kind of helped make me who i am um scooby-doo very important to my Love formation scooby-doo. i every day after school i'd run home and i'd jump from like the edge of our sunken living room onto the zebra couch and watch it and i had a scooby-doo lunchbox and that is why i'm still into like you know like mysteries and like yeah. you know and it's and it had such a, a cool little like rebel kind of edge to it because every episode was like the old man being like i would have gotten away with it if it wasn't for you hippie kids you know and i kind of love that and and then you know I, even in my 20s um by then it was the simpsons and i yep. fucking still love that show yep. it's so culturally important for some reason. Let me just add to everybody. You're not old enough to have seen Snow White on its first run in the theaters. I think I was. No, I came out in the 30s. 19, you are not that old. 1939. Yeah, I, I'm just saying old, you're not that old. Like or 37. A couple years later. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you age really well if that's the case. <laughs> remember, remember how we said Nazis make the world go round? Let me, I'll just leave you with that thought. Um, but... <laughs> <laughs> it's the secret secret sauce and everything. Um, but yeah, there's, you know, animation has had animated stories like huge impact. I think on anyone in my my age group because you had Saturday morning cartoons that ran for eight hours, and I think I watched every hour every Saturday for my entire. You know, like it's a huge chunk of my life. So I miss Saturday yeah. morning cartoons. So I'm gonna sum up these two, and you know. You can correct me or, or jump in if I'm getting just a little summary wrong. But The Halloween Tree by Ray Bradbury um, actually stars narration by Ray Bradbury, which is awesome. Coughing. And then a uh, uh, the main, like, I guess, villain, Montroud, is played by Leonard Nimoy. So I don't know how that casting happened, but I love it. It's about four children that learn their friend has appendicitis and he goes to the hospital and they meet this guy, Montroud, who is kind of deaf, cl- clavicle carapace. Uh, I wrote it down somewhere, but he's got a crazy name. And he's basically like, if you help me find, well, okay, so he's this big tree of um, pumpkins and they all sort of stand in for people's souls. And their friend takes his, what they call pumpkin fire soul and he steals it back so that he gets to stay alive. And Montroud is like, if you help me like find your friend, you'll get your friend back. And at the end of it, it, it all works out because it's a kid's piece of property, a uh, piece of media. But they uh, they go through four different sort of like death rituals and explore those how other cultures um, either worshipped, or celebrated or understood how death worked. Um, mummies, witches, kind of druids, uh, gargoyles and Day of the Dead are the four they cover in that. Um, um, it's made for TV movie. Um, Hanna Barbera. I I bet this was like some sort of test pilot to see if they could make Cartoon Network as a thing and produce their own like mm. on TV cinema. And then there's Stand by Me by Rob Reiner, uh, 1986. Uh, four boys find out, the, out that there's a dead body in the woods. It's pretty far away, and they decide they're gonna go find this dead body and like report that they found it. And then get all these like accolades because they were like the kids that found this missing boy that's dead. 
and it has a whole ton of famous people in it. Will Wheaton, Jerry O'Connell, River Phoenix, Corey Feldman? Yep. Because Haim is the other one. <coughs> Kiefer Sutherland. John Cusack. John Cusack's in it. Yeah, for a hot minute. It's like every 80s child then, except Corey Haim. And then what's his name? Who's the older Will Wheaton? Um, the guy from oh, Close Encounters? Jerry O'Connell. No. Oh, no, I know who you're talking about. Um, oh, Richard Dreyfuss. Yes. Richard Dreyfuss, oh, yeah. Richard Dreyfuss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His name keeps coming up recently. Like, this is no, crazy. I, I don't and know. I realize that's why I think he's the writer. I think he's the narrator in uh, The Sandlot is because he is in mm. Stand By Me. And, oh. Like, for years, I thought it was like he'd played both, but nope, he doesn't. Daniel Stern. No, it's Daniel Stern. Or at least visually, it's not Daniel Stern. Oh, I thought Daniel Stern was the narrator in Wonder no, Years. Wonder Years. Yeah, you're right. But um, it's somebody that I didn't really recognize in The Sandlot, because I recently rewatched that, too. Um, but yeah, that's why I always think it's Richard Dreyfuss, because he's the one from Stand By Me. I like to play a little game after seeing Stand By Me, which is now, I think, Richard, like, that, obviously, there's Richard Dreyfuss's career, like, as a kid, career as a kid, like, his childhood in Stand By Me, and then his career as a writer. And I like to think that in between these is Jaws. So it's one continuous timeline throughout. Like, like he this. thought he was going to be a marine biologist. Right, 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 right. And then he was like, screw that, I'm going to yeah. be a writer. Yep. Yeah, he's a really traumatic childhood. Like, he writes Jaws or something, and then <laughs> goes on to write other things. <laughs> that would be awesome, actually. So that's the two movies. Um, I'm going to, I have a couple questions written down. Um... Trying to think, I should do the one of the softball ones first, and then because I have one that's really good that I want to like be in there. Um, She's petting the cat. Huh? Just petting. The I know cat. it's like I'm a super villain. What what the lit- <laughs> listeners cannot hear is that Melinda is doing her best Doctor Evil Blofeld impression right now. <laughs> She's wearing black, petting a black cat on her lap. Yeah. Uh, I don't have my star earrings on, so I'm not totally uh-huh. evil. Um, Sorry, I'm looking. I'll start with this one. This one's in either movie. What surprised you like about them? Either the storytelling of the characters or the actions. Um, I guess I'll just go first. I mean, simple. I was surprised in Halloween Tree. That's the title, right? Yeah, Halloween Tree. Um, I kept calling it Pumpkin Tree the other day. <laughs> I was like, that's basically what it is. But <laughs> but um, so I was surprised that he actually took a year off all their lives. Yeah, that he accepted He the actually, deal? yeah, I thought he was going to, yeah, like, do the whole kids movie thing where it's right. like, I was I was actually kind of like... Because he starts out like, a year at the burned end are of you your sure? candle? Like, yeah. what the hell do I want that for? Yeah, he's and he's like, like, are you sure? Is his life worth it? And the kid's are like, yeah, <laughs> take, our, take our years. And then he was like, all right. And I was like, okay. <laughs> They're also, it's also not clear if, like, He's this if Pip, who's the kid that is has run away or is the ghost they're trying to save, if he only gets four more years of their lives. <laughs> no, like it's I what is the trade in value yeah. on a, a child's year? Is it got like a yeah, like it converts what's the exchange, so many exchange rate? Like what's and, that? And what does that look like? Mount Trout's motivations and 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 plans are not very clear in this movie, <laughs> but we'll get into that. Um. Yeah, he was very. Anything in, in Stand by Me that. Well, I want to say the other thing about Halloween trees. I was surprised at how serious these kids were about their friendship because, oh, like, yeah, from the beginning, they're like, it's the so. Best person in the world. I mean, Ray Bradbury starts it off. He's got this a little bit of like overselling of this kid, like all those soda pop bottles of shut the fuck up, you know, like. <laughs> But each kid is like, you're the only person who never laughed at my glasses, and I want to thank you. For-. I'm like, these kids are like, they're growing up in this moment, yeah. 
where they're putting value on something for themselves. Yeah. And I thought that was kind of, it had a surprising amount of gravitas for a stupid kind of, like, yeah, like it's a kind of stupid premise, but there was a seriousness there that I thought was, it, it made it work. It made it. Yeah, not for a moment did those kids yeah. ever go like, should we be going to different worlds and endangering our lives for this ginger <laughs> yeah. kid? Like, no. Do we know that well yeah. so much? Because yeah. I feel like I've had like my group of friends, maybe we're terrible people, would have been like, what's happening? All right, well, you know, he did it to himself. <laughs> like, like, I can make other friends. You know, you don't see, like, all of a sudden they're just like, take our years off our lives. I'm like, whoa, let's evaluate. I'd be the one kid who'd yeah. be like, let's uh, talk about this. So, like, is that your Christian name? <laughs> Pipkin. His full name was Pipkin. Yeah. Pipkin. Yeah. Pipkin. Yep. That's just Ray Bradbury Ralph going like, I don't care anymore. No. And Tom. Yeah. And I kept calling Tom Jack in my notes because he clearly should just be Jack Skeleton. Yeah. Like. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that was actually the same year that Nightmare Before Christmas came out. I did think, I was wondering that actually. There's something yeah, about it, really, yeah. But the, the animation is so old-timey. It feels like it was made, but it, but it, Feels like it was made in the 70s. It does. I think that they just didn't have budget. I think they, or they didn't release it or, or distribute okay. it until well, the 90s or something. Well, I don't know. Because really before, we were talking about when, when the beginning of the movie and at the end, like the two, some sequences in the, like shots of the neighborhood and everything were beautiful, I thought. Yeah. The Which artwork. Ones? Some shots in the beginning and the end, like when the kids are traversing the sub, the suburbs and like the streets, mm. some of those and the end shot is beautiful. Like those felt like mm. more, I guess, fitting of the time it came out. But mm. there were some sequences where I'm like, this looks a little weirdly old. I don't know. Because especially 1993, that's the year like Lion King came out the next year. Mm. And that's drastically different animation, like the look of it. But I think it's just a budget thing. I don't know. I was there anything in Stand By Me that stood out as surprising? <laughs> Have you all seen this movie before? Oh, I saw it before. Yeah. This was my first. Uh, this was my first time watching it. I know. I, I I also missed the Goonies, by the way, growing up. Because yeah, my. Better. Did you grow up in China? No. Let me explain. Right. My parents, who thankfully did not. Be- no. No. Cuba. Cuba. No. Okay. No. Uh, my parents, who thankfully did not believe in the rating system, and I have them to credit for everything. my inter- everything, uh, my interest in, in film, uh, my father would just dictate what the family would watch. So there was a lot of like Alien and Fatal Attraction. That was and, I saw Fatal Attraction. Yeah, I'm like, oh, Glenn Close is naked. This could change things for me. Um, <laughs> I feel like this is... Okay, she's a handsome man. Um... <laughs> Yeah, so we, it was more like adult fare, but whenever I got a chance, like the, which is why they let me watch The Simpsons so readily, which also thank you for shaping me, Matt Groening. But um, uh, yeah, I missed a lot of like Monster Squad. I missed. I missed all the 80, big eighties ones. So what surprised you? Because you're the like the first time watcher. Great. Okay. Sorry. So I was talking to Aiden about this this morning because he asked me what I thought, and I prefaced it by saying, "Had I seen this." Uh, when I was the right age to see this, I easily know what my reaction would be. This would be a very important movie to me. And seeing it as a 34-year-old man, I do see it as a very good film. I don't connect with it on the level that I, I thought I would. But what I think is very surprising to me is that while the prime group of kids is looking for this body, there's the other group of kids with the same motivations, kind of, looking for the body. The cobras. As, the cobras, basically, yeah, as well. Uh, I thought that was very interesting that, like, okay, so everyone's on the same page with the result of this, 
it's just like different types of people can have the same motivations. And I thought overall, I'm like that's an interesting message for kids to take away. So, and and I think very clearly once they saw themselves mirrored in the older mm-hmm. boys, they were like, oh, we're not doing this for the right reason. No, I got this gun. It's gonna go real bad. <laughs> yeah, like oh, like they're looking at the older version themselves that they always thought were shitheads, and they're like, oh, yeah, yeah. we did not try to find this boy for any good reason. Mm. Oh, I think what surprised me about the movie too, and I actually, being such a Stephen King fan, I actually never read The Body, so I kind of I want to. Yeah, I want I want to after seeing Stand by Me, mm-hmm. but I think what surprised me, maybe it shouldn't have because Stephen King does this so well, but the moment, I mean, it's it's one of the f- more famous scenes where River Phoenix's character is crying about like an event that happened, and they, they him and what's the main Will character's Wheaton? name? Well, Wheaton's character Gordo. Gordo, Gordo yeah, they share this really like vulnerable moment together and what I thought especially for the t- for the year the movie came out I thought it was really nice that I didn't feel suffocated by like testosterone and by like the like even though they're young boys I didn't feel like they were trying to put on a show like it was nice that they showed boy young boys being vulnerable in a way that's usually seen as more feminine or more like I don't know maybe it's just I I, I thought that cry. that was yeah they all, that down, like, they all cry yeah and it's great to see them be vulnerable and I think what was what was so key about their age is because they are right at the cusp of probably being taught that they have to hide their feelings. But they, they have to be cobras or right. nothing. They're, those they're, are their options. Right, and they're not. Like, and they choose something else. Uh, yeah. yeah. So I thought that that was a very surprising, yeah. but like really catches you off guard in the best possible way. It's like, oh my god, they're being so open. I think the acting is what's surprising. Like you know, yeah, looking there's... back at Will Wheaton, who's like I don't know, friggin' ten, and River Phoenix, who was. 12 maybe I think yeah I think, yeah, they I think were it's like 12. 10 and 13 yeah. yeah the acting's pretty strong and um the one of the elements that stuck with me and I like that Stephen King does this like he he's not a proud writer he says this a lot he'll borrow and steal from wherever and he he presents this as a kind of compelling you know quest narrative and I do love that moment where they confront the uh, junkyard dog and this is the Cerebus figure before they kind of go into their own kind of netherworld as part of their journey. And when I watched it the first time, <clears throat> I remember not getting that at all. And um, knowing what I know now and just kind of recalling some of the elements in the film that stuck with me, he does such a good job of taking, a, he sticks very, very closely to well-worn narrative structures. He doesn't deviate. But it doesn't, you really, you have to know a lot about just narrative structure and plot structure to to really, for that to stand out. Because I think the story and the the characters kind of... Cerebus goes after balls. You just kind of miss it. (laughs) Yeah, it's... Also, that pie-eating... See, that was clever though. That was hilarious. Like, and they somehow made it like it—it it was out of place a little bit, mm-hmm. but like kind of in the best possible way. Like, you needed that moment of like, what Levity, is it? Yeah. Like, I remember halfway through that scene where, like, or towards the end of it, when everyone was <coughs> vomiting, oh, yeah, and, I'm, yeah. and I'm just like, what did this movie <laughs> just become? But it was like awesome because it's hilarious. I think it actually shows the ingenuity. Of, that scene shows the ingenuity of the kids because that was a story being told about another kid, right? Mm. And it was just like no, so. It was a story he made up. Oh, he, seems he made to be a writer, yeah. and they said, "Tell us why your story's been not a scary one." Right. So, <laughs> and then, okay. And then, and then, and then he just goes on and on and, and then on. And they debate yeah. the ending that he should like 
kill people or like go away with a lone ranger or something. <laughs> like the most boy conversation. But possible. what that story shows is that that character was someone who was willing to fall, take a hit in order to give everyone else a hit. Where it's like, I'm going to ingest all this crap knowing I'm going to throw up. And I know you'll throw up because you'll see me throw up. And then because you're all up there, I'll be forgotten about and you'll feel the embarrassment. And they don't know he did that. They don't know he maliciously did it. I mean, here's the thing too that I think everyone takes away from that movie now is it's it's not just a movie about kids going on a journey of self-discovery or kind of education of a group of young boys. So it's not just a a Bildungsroman. It's also the story of the education of a writer. Mm. So he starts out telling stories that are not good stories, right? Because only one thing happens. The kid keeps eating. It's not much of a story. That's why all he does is, right, he eats too much. What happens after that? He vomits. Not much of a story. But after he has this experience where he is vulnerable, he does see, my choices are I can be an asshole man or I can be who I am. That's the narrative story that he experiences that then turns him into a writer. So I think... The sto- I think the surprise about that is there is this sort of depth to King that we don't often get. Like in Misery, it's sort of the undoing of a writer. And as much as the Kathy Bates character wants to destroy the writer because he's destroyed the world that she's so invested in. I think unraveling is definitely a theme in Misery. Un- well, well, unraveling the writer. I mean, in that his stories are often about writing. Yeah. As much as they are, not always, okay, not always, obviously not always, but some of his stories are about writers, and, and Misery and, and Stand By Me are about the building of a writer, the Bildungsroman, the education of a writer, yeah, and Misery is this, yes, that's right, and and Misery is this sort of unraveling of a writer, who nevertheless still, right, survives. Does he become a better writer? Nah. Ooh, but he still writes. I but think. he still writes. Yeah. yeah. So I thought that was this. That's kind of what surprised me after the fact. Mm. You know. But is it like an a distinctly American theme to have people go into the woods to like discover themselves or find something out about themselves? Um, I, 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 I just because we saw a film recently, um, uh, the House of the Clock and Its Walls, which I thought was a really fun film. Uh, you know, it was had its issues, sure, but like I'm happy it did well. There is, uh, I believe, the answer is kind of yes, with the exception of German fairy tales. That's something we have in common with them. And in this film, a character, the villain, goes into the woods and discovers something about himself while he's fighting in World War One or two. I don't know of any other stories outside of the culture of like the American uh, American pantheon of story and German fairy tales where people do go into the woods as often. I'm sure there's one in every culture, sure, but I don't know. I well, like, Spirited Away, she goes into the woods, but she goes into a city, so it's not quite the same story. Well, it's not... Is it? Is it? Is Spirited Away, which I freaking love, I, I kind of want to say it's not the woods that... That's what I'm saying. Into. That's what I'm saying. Like, she goes... It's much more about this fantasy yeah. land she enters it's not about they are in the woods for a while but it's not about yeah. like nature no. yeah. and it's also based much. on an American tale so it's I based think, on Alice in Wonderland I think the answer is definitely yes I mean the whole entire all of the story of Into the Woods by Stephen Sondheim explores that I mean it's in the lyrics too it's like Into the Woods the journey blah 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 and it's like the whole theme is going into the woods to learn something about yourself mm. so that you can make the changes you need to um, so I would I think that's definitely and that's a very American there's a bunch of really good writers, uh, historians, I should say, about early American literature. And if you want, I can give you a list. But um, 
what there, a lot of them are looking at in early American literature is what what was the relationship of early American, they're talking about English settlers in um, Salem and uh, Plymouth. What was their relationship to the, um, you know, geographical space around them? Mm. So the, they invest the woods, the wilderness, with intense diabolical energy because that's where Native Americans lived. So there's this very, like, you know, racialized, genocidal kind of fury in, um, in the American context that isn't there in the European context. So when the Grimm's fairy tales, yeah, kids walk into that. the woods, yeah, bad shit happens. Um, <laughs> because probably it's also recording the moment where the woods are shrinking because there's mm. over-harvesting of the woods. There's probably something like that. But yeah, genocidal colonialism in the American context gives us this trope of the woods as distinctly racialized, I think. But that doesn't mean... Um, it's just to say that that the context for those stories in America is, is a little bit Yeah, it's bit like, don't go into the woods, that's Europe. where the others are. Exactly. And that's kind of like the whole of exactly. the village. By like They even play that game where they stand on the stump right. and they have their backs turned to the unknown or the woods mm-hmm. and they have, like, that's where the those we don't speak He's of. He's sort of teasing that Which they talk about all the time. Bit. Those we don't speak of and they speak about them. Those we don't speak of and they speak about them. It's... It's very interesting, though, that like we have that these cultures use the woods as an example of don't go in there. That's the unknown. When African cultures and Asian cultures, specifically uh, Japanese cultures, the, the Japanese culture uses the ocean as that purpose for them, which is very, very interesting. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, it's geographical. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when I think of the quintessential woods story, um, it, it's not until the 19th century, I would say, and you get to Young Goodman Brown. Um, the Hawthorne short story where it's a Puritan oh. couple and he, the husband, and they're just, just desperately in love. Like it's very sweet at the beginning. They really love each other. And he just starts to think that maybe his wife is walking to the woods like, does she need to go in there? What's she going in there for? And he thinks she's um, going in there for nefarious purposes and he starts to spy on her. And he, you can see over the court, yeah, he convinces himself that she's a witch. And by the end, we're not really sure if what he's seeing is true or not, but we know that he believes it's true, and it completely undoes their relationship. So it's definitely a good metaphor for marriage, but it's one of the beginnings, I think, around the same time Poe is writing, too. Um, But Poe, you know, a lot of his stuff is in the city, um, the man of the crowd, the black cat, Or places like the South Fall of the House of Usher. Mm. He's not really like I went into the woods and these terrible things happened kind of guy. I think no, I think that's space and then yeah. you're stuck in that or, space. Or too many people in that yeah. in the city and we don't know who they are and that, that creeps me out. That's I think it's place. Irving that gives us the um the the headless horseman, that guy. Yep. Um, that's probably where we get some of that. But like, at some point, it does switch over to not just being scary, but that you learn something. Like Ray Bradbury and Stephen King both have this like kids go off into the woods and they gain like a new understanding from like having like this yeah. is a very like Thoreau thought, right? That you know, if I'm in the woods, I'll have I'll be a more whole person or it will complete me in some way, even though it's evil and scary. And this is actually a thing I've heard, and maybe you said it that like Brits set horror in the city and Americans set horror in the woods. But we also kind of believe it's good for us. I'm trying to think of a horror story. I guess I, the Headless Horseman, it's certainly good for the listener of the story to take something away from that about maybe humility and, um, mm. you know, not, not 
So we have a weird relationship with the woods. Full of monsters, but maybe maybe puberty. Uh, yeah, but I think very early, right on to Rekha's point in terms of like when we started writing about this stuff as an American culture, it's because you can't see the woods. We had not yet discovered the prairie at this time in our culture. Right, right. So like you're not going to have the same story. Kids going off into the prairie. No, you can see for miles on that thing. There's no surprises. Nothing's lurking around you. This isn't like the lost world with high grass and raptors sneaking around. That's not what this is. It's you can't see what's hiding behind the tree. Slender Man lives in the woods. He does not live on the prairie. There's a really cool moment where, you know, in in the uh, diaries and writings of early American um, Puritans where, where I, I can't remember who it is exactly, but they say something along the lines of when you look at the woods, you can't see through the sort of undergrowth Meaning that because the woods are shrinking in England, you look through a stand of trees, you look through the stand of trees, you kind of can see into it. But because they're so dense in America, you can't see anything. Plus, all these Native Americans are in there. So it's... They're just hanging out. Yeah. Don't... Yeah. And they, and they didn't... And think about it. Native Americans would go through the, the woods in a certain path to get to where they needed to go and then go back the way... And they knew where they were going. It was like, you know... Streets in a suburb, kind of thing, yeah. but not for the Puritans. So when they walked in, they didn't know where they were. They no. didn't know where they were going. So different, was. yeah. So I think it starts out. Now, when does it become in, in, informative? I think you're right. I think it's 19th century and people mm. like Thoreau who were taking it back to mean like this is where I discover myself. Okay, yeah, because it is very like two different thoughts. Yeah. Absolutely. Like that this place isn't evil, that being in the middle of it, it helps me somehow. And that's exactly the moment in the 19th century that this sort of the, the, the last, um, the idea that Native Americans were disappearing race is common. But I also think that's got the two opposing views on like, like you said, it's full of monsters, but also it's a good thing makes sense because self-discovery can be scary mm-hmm. at the same time and change can be scary and i think that that's maybe at the base of why the woods represents those two things it's like oh well there's unknowns but they're necessary and they can be a good thing we just have to some some trees will be hiding something monstrous and some will be hiding something useful there is i think but you know with you you're talking about the hawthorne story earlier thinking about it now i don't know like if you look at the woods in a fantastical, not outside of fairy tales and outside of horror or something scary, it's where the elves live and it's always this place of like hidden magic and healing. Oh, go into the woods to find the spring. Go into the woods to find these items into the woods. Um, there are scarier moments, but when you get past that point of adolescence, the, you don't fear the woods anymore. There's nothing horrific there. You kind of know you will take the Thoreau approach. You will take the her- the hermit approach. That's where you get into the wild, right? Yeah, the guy, who, exactly. McCandless, who yeah. goes to and then um, guy Alaska. In the woods. And then he died in the woods. This is a weird question, and I could, I mean, maybe it's just bad writing, but Ray Bradbury is considered a fairly good writer. Yes. So maybe it's just the movie itself, because I don't remember the book, although I remember, I went through a big Ray Bradbury and Stephen King phase at the same exact time. Hmm. Like 12. Interesting combo. Like, I loved reading older stuff. I liked reading, like, what things came from. So once I found Stephen Mm. King, I was like, what is he looking at? And I started reading that. Um... But, like, why? Because, like, Mount really ends on a lesson, and he goes, like, I was teaching you not to fear me. Like, or fear death. And he is essentially death. But, like, why? Mm. It really bothered me, because it seemed like a strange lesson. Mm. He does this interesting thing in the very beginning, which it seems as it when he... 
They meet him, and he's bothered by them. Mm-hmm. And then he takes... Mount Trout is bothered by the four kids, because they see Pip run in. And then he takes a moment, okay, this is the tree. And right before they go on the journey, he looks at them, and he makes some offhanded comment about their costumes. And he's like, well, wait a minute. You don't even understand what you're dressing I like. Up. I, I take exception to that. Yeah, it's like, how, wait, hang on. Now it's time. It's almost like he's like, I will educate you in what your costumes are. Because t- you said earlier, it's like these different cultures' representation of death. I find what the gargoyles to me don't represent death and the druids were just whatever, but the other two were fine. So it seems as if he kind of, again, you're right. I think it is the movie, not Bradbury himself in terms of narrative structure. It seems as if it's the movie wanted to say, let's talk about your costumes and where they come from. Some of which have to do with death and how societies deal with death. Um, cause like the skeleton, that kid was not thinking day of the dead. That kinky, that kid, kinky, that kid was thinking there's a skeleton in a grave. That's all this is. So then you're right. He does do this thing at the end where he's like, now you've learned not to fear me. Oh, Tom comes up with that actually. Yeah. Cause it's Tom's final lesson. And then it's just kind of like, oh, uh, what was the point of this? My cats are, uh, having a boyfriend's fast. You guys make up. It's important to a lot of people that you stay together. It's all of us. The internet needs you. So yeah, munch, we we don't right, so quite. The whole, the whole yeah. premise of that of of Halloween trait. Yeah, it starts out. We're gonna get our friend's soul back, and he's like, "Let me teach you about your costumes," mm-hmm. which is like a fourth grade weird lesson that he's got to impose on that. Yeah, it doesn't. It's you like, look like a witch. You look like a slut. Yeah, it's, it's like, like weird, a dicky but... blues clue. Blues yeah. clues. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I, but I have to say, there was a moment at the end where he's like, why are you dressed as a skeleton? And Tom's like, because of my name. He's like, have I taught you nothing? <laughs> I'm like, yeah. Part of me is so identified with him as someone who's like had those conversations with students. Where have you been for six weeks? <laughs> Told you multiple times, no. I thought I was the whale represent a whale. No! I very much enjoyed when he would show up in disguise, but like clearly it was him and the kids every time were surprised. Like with the Day of the Dead when he comes over and he's all like covered up and he has like the sugar skulls and all the kids totally just don't even know it's him. It's the same voice. It's the same hand. And the kids are like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then then every time he reveals himself, they're like, oh, God, that we didn't know. This is the same type of kids that would sit down and be like, yeah, uh, Batman and, and I mean, the... Clark Kent, Superman, two totally different guys. He takes off the glasses. Yeah. <gasps> Again, you should see Mystery Men. It's great. <laughs> I've seen Mystery Men. It's amazing. It is. Um, so, I play this game of what two characters from one from each are the most similar, like who sort of links up as being and and we can and, and, and let's put it the way it's not just Vern and Wally okay <laughs> as the fat kids <laughs> also Jerry O'Connell man I laughed so hard when he cried running with the train and I couldn't stop and, I, and it was like on and off so like cut away to the other kids looking worried off come back to him and I burst out laughing every time I was like I told Aiden the other day, I'm like, I want to travel back in time and tell, like, fat little Jerry O'Connell. It's like, oh, buddy, you're not just going to grow up to marry Rebecca Romaine. You're going to steal her from Uncle Jesse. <laughs> that's how... Hottie and a half. That's how attractive you're going to be. He's a smart guy, right? Isn't he kind of a smart guy? Like, I read she had a question on him as a child. Like, apparently they were at some party with, There's like, hope for her everybody. old, like, college buddies. And they basically revealed this. They were like, hey, in, in college, like, I was her roommate... She had a poster of you in her room. And I don't know if this is true or not, oh, but like I love that story that like she's the creepy stalker. Wait, wait, wait. Yeah, Hang on. Too. 
Because wasn't I, I forget? Forgive me for not remembering Jerry uh, O'Connell's filmography, but wasn't like his successes like wasn't it just sliders? Yeah. <laughs> so she had a sliders poster. No, in her I, think room? Was, I think it was Stand by Me. The fat kid poster from Stand by Me. <laughs> like she had a huge crush on him. Oh, Rebecca Romaine, your your stock is rising in terms of an interesting person. Yeah. I know. I I read it like on IMDb. And I just, oh. yeah, so if we're not doing Vern and Wally, because they're just like the fat kid trope, and that's not an interesting one to think about. As much as other characters. Maybe Gordo and, and Tom? A little eh. bit, but like Tom's is not not as much of the leader, because Pipkin's supposed to be the leader. Yeah, but he's the one with the most narrative. Skin, yeah. I feel, like than- I feel like Tom was always just like Tom, mm-hmm. and the only real thing he learned apparently was not to be afraid of death. No, no, no. Tom has the most growth, because he's like, I always wanted to be the leader. No, compared to, to Gordo from... From Stand By Me, I mean. Like, compared... Compare to- That's what I'm saying. Like, they have the most growth in the both stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think... And Stand By Me, it's even more gross. Oh, well, they're more complex characters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Other than that, I don't know who would be... I really felt like Chris and Pipkin. Because Chris is that, like, emotional core for everybody that they can relate back to. That they feel comfortable around. Like, Teddy... Like, Teddy leans against Chris when he cries. He doesn't go to the other kids for Mm -hmm. solace. Because Mm -hmm. he knows even as an asshole as Chris is, he's, like, Mm -hmm. not going to make fun of him for this. He's not going to, like... He's Mm going to be, like, a good hugger. (laughs) Well, I guess you could say Mountrout and the body are the same. Oh, Mountrout and Keith Su- Kiefer Sutherlander. Ace. Ace. Those names were amazing. All of them were amazing. Like Denny. What was his name? De- it's Dennis. What is his name? Denny. Denny? That's not a name. <laughs> not even in the 60s, I don't think. I will say this, though, for the Halloween tree, for including a female character who's just kind of there. No attention was drawn to the fact that she was a female, except for the fact that she was in a witch's costume. Yeah, she was very much like one of the boys type of yeah. thing without being like, you know, she was a tomboy. Like she would. Yeah. yeah, I thought that was a that's a she good point. She was wearing a dress, and yeah, she just yeah, showed and, up and she's like, I just don't want Tom to see me cry, and I was like, you go, girl. Yeah, don't let him see you cry because you should be fucking crying. No, I know, I'm kidding. I wonder how Stand by Me would be different with a female character in it. Mm. Yeah, female not. cast. Mm. Yeah, it could be Mean Girls. I mean, I mean it could yeah be bitchy girls, the older sister who's like, we're gonna take all the glory. You could easily do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they probably will. <laughs> Great, not not set in like any present day where kids just take off for two days, yeah. and no parental unit notices <laughs> them is... at all. Oh yeah, the the eighties like where are the parents? Tro- Even in the nineties, like Hocus Pocus, like those kids, like they show up to their parents' dance. There are witches, sure. You're not going to believe they're actual witches, but like they put a spell on these parents, and the kids are just still kind of like, dude, we told you. Parents don't care. They never care. I think this. I think when the producers of Halloween Tree produced Hocus Pocus, or one of the writers is insane. Oh, yeah, like, yeah. Mark Young produced the Halloween Tree. I was looking some up, up some of the names to see who... Because yeah. the guy that directed it literally directed, like, you know, the Little Pony Juniors holiday <laughs> special. Like, he did not do very much that's notable. Hmm. And, obviously, Rob Reiner did a ton of things. Rob Reiner did Misery, didn't he? Probably. He did a ton of things. I think yeah. he did... I think he did Misery as well, which is actually really interesting that they're yeah. both by the same guy. Yeah. He wrote really glowingly of Stand By Me about how like it taught him to direct hmm. that he felt like having the structure of like a Stephen King story like gave him yeah you know a lot to work with and that he learned how to do things I, I will say this as someone who's done it more times than he thought he would um, as a director working with kids will probably teach you more about directing and filmmaking and how to work with actors than working with adults um, it just because their emotions and the way that you deal with them are so unfiltered and there's no mind game. There's no strategy behind it. There's no like, oh, like an adult actress or adult actor. What's my motivation? 
motivations. Yeah, it's not just the motivation. It's like, I want to do this scene my way. I'll give you two and you give me one. The kids are just like, what do you want? Okay, then they try it. They can't do that thing because they don't know those emotions. So then you have to work with them to help find it as opposed to an adult who's only calling on his own experiences that he knows and he doesn't want to hear your voice usually. So that's very interesting that Rob Reiner said that. I know when Teddy cries, he, he got he got him to pull up some really horrible memory. Like he sat down with Corey Feldman and was just like worked with him to get that moment. Oh, I'm sure he like, thought about it. And he's and it was just and he's like really bawling. And it was actually supposed to not like camera wasn't supposed to be rolling. But he was like, you know, we'll just try it, you know? And because he was just kind of like fake crying and they were like, and so that's like really like raw. That is the, that is one of the few movies with children that it never has a child actor kind of moment. To yeah. freaking hate child acting. Like it's so painful. Yeah, and it, you know, no, no real fault on the kid. They're not real actors yet. They're mostly kids. Yeah, it's good kid. Yeah, what are some other movies with like actually good kid acting? The Piano, Anna Paquin. She was nominated for an Oscar for that, deservedly so. Paper Moon. Paper Moon is Paper Moon. Yeah, yeah. Which I've reviewed, and and that episode's intact. So that one's coming out. Um, That one's intact. That one did not have audio issues. Um, yeah, she won youngest actress to ever wear yeah, win an Oscar was, one, yeah. was, uh, well, she's still the youngest cause she was nine. Is she still the youngest? She is still the youngest. No, no, no. The girl from, um, the Fantastical Beasts movie. Oh, Beasts of the Southern Wilds. Yeah. Southern Wilds. What's her name? I don't remember. Oh, the kid from, uh, Kramer vs. Kramer was no, really good. Really? I read it as a Mad Magazine movie, you know, where really? they used to do oh, movies, yeah, yeah, yeah. and they would cartoonize them, and they would do the similar dialogue, but they'd make more jokes. And that's the only way I know that movie still. Kramer versus Kramer, I, I, being a, I'm an adult child of divorce. They got divorced when I, my parents got divorced when I was older. Uh, that is a, th- that movie came out at the perfect time for it to come out because divorce rates were on the rise and it was normalizing and there's a lot of anger going on. And I, I've read about this movie so many times yep. and finally seeing it being like, oh, this is, holy shit, this is like Library of Congress type level of yeah. movie for this country. It's almost a document. Yeah. It's not even, a, yeah. I have a theory that um, Dustin Hoffman doesn't remember he was Captain Hook and Hook um, because they were reviewing, they doing a retrospective with him and he saw a few clips, like they were showing him like clips and then he kind of leans forwards and squints at the Hook clips and I'm like, you don't remember you were in that movie, do you? <laughs> that movie, there are movies, I'm starting to build a category of movies that when you describe them to other people that have never seen them or heard of them, yeah. they sound like you're having a stroke. Yeah. yeah. Like I described um, Interview of a Vampire to somebody in the cast and they were like, what? <laughs> I was like, it's Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise. You're just saying names. <laughs> and Antonio Banderas and Christian Slater and Kirsten Dunst yep. are all in a movie together and they're like, <laughs> no, no, that's not possible. That that does not happen. Mm. And I was like, and it was directed by a big time director, Jordan Neil Jordan. Neil Jordan. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's directed other vampire movies, which is even weirder. That's that kind of borderlines on like I know SNL kind of played into this perfectly. Oh. The the mom celebrity translator, where <laughs> that you're is just the like funniest thing. Did you oh, see this? Because moms famously are like just tea. you she know can't get any celebrity no. Movie. They've got two eyes and a nose. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> but it's just like... Because people don't have this knowledge and not in this world all the time, they're like, I don't know, but like Tom Cruise Mission Impossible. Okay, we got that. But you put them all together and like, I think I would have heard of that movie. <laughs> I think so. It's like, well, it was the early... It was what, 94, 93? It's kind of like... Yeah, it's like, ah, uh, you weren't really paying attention. And, you know, it's okay. It's okay. 
<laughs> I'm really excited, um, speaking of vampire movies, to watch The Lost Boys. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to re-record one. I love um, that movie. And uh, it's with Zoe, um, Arnold Connor, and we. I gave them the option to re-record what we'd done or to record a new subject. And Zoe's my last intern that's never seen The Lost Boys. <gasps> so, like, I, for some reason, this is, like, this is like a mountain I need to climb. Like, I've seen it with Karen. I've seen it with Zane. And I was like, we have to watch this. So we're going to watch it with Peter Pan. And Peter Pan's going to be a shit show of racism. I Who's already Peter know. Oh, like, the Disney, like Disney. Like, the Disney, because animated. <laughs> but it's going to be terrible. And I know I'm going to hate it. I, it's one of those things that so many things borrow from, like Wizard of Oz. But I actually can't stand Peter Pan at this point. Whereas I'll watch something that's based on Wizard of Oz. I'm like, this is fine. Here, here's my question, just to talk into the racism, not why we're here, but the racism of Peter Pan is... Once upon a time, the sh- the, the show on, on ABC, which is owned by Disney, when they did Tiger Lily, she was Native American! Same year, or the year after, when they did it with, with Garrett Hedlund, Tiger Lily was Rooney Mara! <laughs> <laughs> Uh, was so, it? Someone got fired and someone got hired in that year. Yeah. <laughs> you ever see the Christopher Walken version? That's my favorite. The live action one where he coughs and just kind of falls asleep in the middle of it. I haven't seen it, but I saw the clips from the soup, and that's good enough. He's just like phoning it in, like so clearly yeah. phoning. Paycheck, paycheck, paycheck. It's, you think of that Krusty the Clown moment where it's like, "What was I supposed to do? They drove a dump truck full of money up to my house, and then Bart, like ironically, is like, I don't know, Krusty. I would never put my name on an inferior product. And there's just Bart Simpson on like Pez dispensers and like those little mazes that you get in Happy Meals. Where, where's some more of my questions? I flipped over my pages. We're gonna do two more, I think. Um, so most similar characters, we talked about that a little bit. Um, oh, what do you, but what do you think, like, the characters discover? Like, I mean, I know that Montrand is like, you've discovered not to fear death. But if we're going to take that very clear <laughs> lesson. Like, yeah. So random. It was just so random. Um, <laughs> and I assume, I assume the Halloween tree, if I remember correctly, is a little more like, like a poem. So maybe it was let, like they had to tease out a lot more things, but I could be wrong. Stand by Me is like more more of a writer's movie, and the Halloween Tree is a field trip. Like <laughs> it felt like a trip, to, a trippy magic school. Well, yeah, it's like a slightly darker magic school yeah. bus. Yeah, <laughs> and we're gonna talk about death all the way, and yeah. kids are like, Miss Frizzle looks. I love that theory that Miss Frizzle is a time lord, <laughs> which yeah. the, and the school buses are TARDIS. But I love magic school. Yeah. But it's like it's more magic school busy, so their lessons yeah. are more textbook lessons. Where Stand by Me is more like personal it's lessons. Yeah. 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 It's like day of the day. Mm. It is really weird. I actually really loved. I wrote that down, and then that was I sort of came creepy, to my. Yeah. I came to my own conclusion as as I was writing things because he won't go in the church, and I was like, really, is this some bullshit Christianity thing? And then I actually thought about what like churches represent, which is sanctuary from yeah, things yeah. like him. So that made more sense than like. He's weirdly, like, actually a demon and can't, like, mm. deal with Christianity. It's more like what churches... The other places are houses of the dead or ways to worship the dead. Yeah. And a church is not that thing. It is, like, a warding off of, like, evil and... Or, mm. or bad things befalling you. Not even evil, because death is so not... So is Mount Shard death? I think so. But then he dies. His pumpkin dies at the end of it. I thought he was a vampire. His pumpkin was another terrifying thing. Yeah. That... It explained his head, though. I was like, that explains your head. I'm so glad they did that at the end. I this is the whole thing, and I'm like, but the back of your head. Why are we not talking about that? I kind of want to just go back to the... The, 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 the lesson? No, not the... Well, kind of the lesson, but 
in touch in line with like Mantrad's pumpkins. You said that they represent like people's souls. The way I, I mean, I, yeah, I thought it was like representation of each Halloween year, like a baby New Year to like maybe he's baby New Year, because it talks about like this Halloween, this happened in this pumpkin, and that happened in this one. So maybe I, I'm not. But then you're it, it maybe isn't because like. Pip steals his gears pumpkin? It's very, it's a little unclear. Yeah, what happens And they to... definitely do, like, an analogy between the pumpkin and the sugar skulls. And definitely mm-hmm. the sugar skulls are, like, eating your soul. Like, taking yeah. the back. And their names are written on them. Yeah. Except you don't see Jenny's name. It's not there. <laughs> it's not It's like the girl doesn't have a name. <laughs> it's too long, bro. I have a question, actually. Does, um... And this might be, like, the dumbest question ever, but, I mean, we all know that Stephen King can write can write children in very well because he often does but what about Ray Bradbury because it seems like Halloween Tree is not his usual audience because yeah like you think of Fahrenheit 451 you think of like all his other he works he writes a lot about kids though does um, he? I don't know well I'm trying to think of the stories there's Fahrenheit 451 oh really? or maybe after, it's like or one of them dies on the trip oh wait the body? Yeah. Oh, when the kids are in it, they're very much like Pipkin, though. They're like the spark, the the brightest boy in the room. Oh, um, something wicked this way comes. Very yeah. classic kid story. I love that story. Well, the thing, oh, that's the one thing that angered me, that really angered me the most about the Halloween tree. And we talked on it earlier. Was we only yeah because we only see we don't really see Pip. Every time we see Pip, he's he's like screwed. Like he's the greatest boy in the world. We're told, and he didn't laugh at someone and everything we talked about earlier, but like. We don't really see what makes him that good. It's only secondhand stories. No, it, I disagree. Okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, in those moments where, you know, they're like, um, I think Tom says, oh, yeah, when Tom, this is a good example. Tom says, this is, your dying is my fault because I wished it because I wanted to sometimes be leader. And he's like, it's okay. You can be leader sometimes. Like, he immediately just forgives him and makes room for him. That's fair. Okay. He's, that's a pretty deep little kid. I don't believe he exists ever. That's the question. Was Pip ever alive to begin with? That's the most unrealistic part of the movie. Oh, no, I do believe he's a good kid. I'm just saying we don't see like him being the greatest kid we in the world. See yeah. Well, all those kids in the Halloween tree were too morally upright. They were too morally good. That, now let's, I know it's a kid. No, 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 no. I think that's an interesting point because I was thinking about like this movie must have come out in the 70s or 60s because it feels so staid. Yeah. And it is the morality. There's a kind of moral, like these kids don't have to learn to be morally good. They already they are. Know, yeah. And so what do they have to learn is like where the fuck their costume comes from? Like that's all that's left for them to learn because then they tack on the learning about death at the end, which they are already like years ahead. They're like, I'm willing to give up my 81st year for my young friend because I mean, they can figure that out even, you know? So yeah, their moral arc is short because they start out so good. Whereas I think the moral arc for the kids in, um, Stand by me is much longer because up till the very last moment they're like, yeah, we're gonna find this body, we're gonna be cool, and then they're like, oh my god, this is a kid like us, and he's dead, and people are just treating him like he's nothing, and so their moral arc is much. Oh yeah, the anonymous phone call was their that was their like proving point. We're like, it's anonymous. We're not gonna tell you who we are. The kid's over there. Go find him. Yeah, he's and they put a blanket over him. Mm. They leave a blanket so that he's like sort of sheltered. But something with this way comes. The kids do learn a thing. It's Jim Nightshade and. Somebody Holloway, I Tom Holloway, and they're two boys born on either side of midnight on Halloween, and they're best friends. But Jim always wants to be—he's the kid that wants to leave the town, and Tom is the kid that's probably going to stay. 
And they have to sort of realize that, like, neither of them is wrong and that, like, they don't have to speed up to grow up and and, because this evil carnival comes and they realize it's evil and they're trying to, like... But they're also trying to benefit from it a little bit because there's a merry-go-round that can age you up or down. Mm -hmm. And so Jim wants to go on the the merry-go-round and become older very, very quickly. And he sort of has to realize, like... He that that's a bad thing. You should not like try to grow up too quickly. And Tom has to realize that you can't sort of stay young. That he can't hold his friend back and say like let's stay children forever. Yeah. And there's it's real. I love that story. Like that's a nice that's a nice much. lesson. I think the kids in this story don't get much to learn. In, no, um, at least in the film depiction, that yeah, like the way yeah. the film depicts it, it doesn't do their arc justice. I don't know if the if the storybook is is any different, but it probably if it's a storybook, probably not. Yeah, it's, I don't know. Yeah, I I read it so long ago, and again, these were short things I could have reread. Well, going back to Rekha's point, it's like they learn. Okay, they're morally good people, and then they learn not to fear death. Like on the base level, you're kind of complete as a person now. So he must be dead. He share. just kind of shows up in the timeshare. <laughs> The property's not Timeshare haunted houses. Get on it. I'm actually, I'm sure that's a category in Airbnb, by the way. Like, if you really, because there's three houses. Anything else you want to talk about? And then I'm going to ask you about which animated film makes you cry. I, I mean, I like that the, the kids have, that both stories are about kids who are on a journey. And they come back from the journey and they're changed. Um, I think Stand By Me, I think enough it would be interesting to see that same movie told from the point of view of Ace and Eyeball. Mm-hmm. And Ace, Eyeball was his Vern's type. brother. Yeah, yeah. Older brother. Who There's does go into the army, right? I don't yeah. know. I don't remember anybody actually going into the army. I don't remember either. Vern Who becomes like a dump truck driver killed. or something. Chris. Chris, Chris he, right? he, yeah, the, in the beginning. The robbery, no, he's, he's, yeah. he breaks up a bar fight. Chris oh, turns into like the moral... It's like Chris and Gordy, Gordo, Gordo, who become like the normal or right. normal, the average, like well-balanced people. And Chris pursues this like higher, higher calling life and then steps into a bar fight and gets stabbed in the middle of it because he breaks but, tries to break it. In. Yeah. He yeah, tries yeah. to be like, hey, That's, guys, you know, one. cool down. And like one of them shivs him and he just. Dies. Yeah. And he has to, and Richard Dreyfus finds this out in a newspaper article. No one even calls the man. Well, they drift apart. I know. I get yeah. it. But still. They drift apart. I know. Um. Life happens. Yeah, Bird becomes a dump truck driver and has a bunch of kids. Teddy becomes kind of like, like a handyman, like like slightly homeless guy, like just drifter. Chris becomes a lawyer, even though he was the one that stole the lunch money and he tried to return it. It's such a heartbreaking story, too. Like it's so that that was hard too. And then Gordo becomes a and Gordo's such a weird name for him. It's such a weird name. But he becomes a writer. Because there's that whole, like, I don't want to take the college prep courses. I want to stay with you guys. And then he's like, well, if you come with me, Chris, you know, I'll do this. Chris is like, I can't keep up. Like, I'm supposed to be like a shot class kid, you know? And they actually, and that's a nice, that was to me, I had forgotten that part. That, like, Chris doesn't just fulfill, like, his destiny. Mm -hmm. That he's supposed to be this, like, Mm -hmm. you know, dirty, towny kid. Yeah. Well, there is one more thing, at least from my point of view, if you're asking anything. I would say in this style, in this refer, in, uh, in this instance, I'd say that the animation underserved the story. Oh yeah. Because I feel that if had the Halloween tree been a live action movie, you would have gotten something a bit deeper. But because oh, it was made, 
Yeah, Cartoon Network was what ninety two, and this was ninety three. Whether they and it was released ninety three anyway. It certainly started made maybe even ninety two. Whether it had anything to do with it or not, you weren't really getting anything much deeper because animation hadn't really gotten to that. And Hanna Barbera never told mm-hmm. those kinds of stories. That's no. the other thing. The production company making this no. does not tell those kinds of stories. Mm-hmm. It's not like no. you know Don Bluth going off and making Secret of Nim. Mm-hmm. where he was doing Disney films and said, I have something deeper to say mm-hmm. and really pushed at it. This felt like a stretch for Hanna-Barbera to not just like do their hokey... Because mm-hmm. they're the Flintstones and... Yeah. Although, when did Watership Down, the um, animated version, come out? The 80s, I think. I think animation was looking... You know, there's probably examples of animated movies. Oh, yeah, I'm just saying that as a studio, they don't have that drive of, like, story quality. Yeah, there's no way you're making Watership Down and making that target kids. That was definitely made for an older audience. It's almost like you're going to make Jonathan Livingston Siegel as an animated film. The five-year-olds aren't exactly getting this. Well, now that you said that thing about, like, gave a background about the making of the Halloween Tree movie, it definitely feels like a vehicle rather than a standalone mm. piece. Like, and it won an Emmy. It won a daytime Emmy. So, yeah, but Stand by Me feel obviously doesn't feel like a vehicle for anything. It's just this self-contained mm. story. But yeah, yeah, it definitely felt like Halloween Tree was more of like a promise rather than, like, the carrying out of the promise. Yeah. Because, like you, like you said, it was probably just, like, a vehicle for Hanna-Barber to be like, oh, let's make we Cartoon Network. We can do more and, things yeah, and yeah, stories. Yeah. And so that's probably why it We can tell helped. more, we can have more interesting styles. Because then they did Johnny Bravo and yep. Powerpuff Love Girls Johnny. were the first ones in Dexter's Lab. and Classic after classic. And then Eddie, Ed, Ed and Eddie came out. Ed, Ed and Eddie is weird. <laughs> that's what I've heard. It doesn't seem like my yes. speed. Because um, even if you look at the other movies around the same time that were made yeah. for kids, like Never Ending Story, I could go into like a whole essay on the for first and second. For Nightmare Christmas. I mean, yeah. very similar. A Halloween theme. But they are live action. Because I could even well, argue... I could argue, though, that that is... Li- I know it's not strict animation, yeah, yeah. but you're making... Yeah. It's more It's more target. These are adults making a movie they want to make technically for themselves, and they just know that the look will appeal to kids. That's the studio's backing I'm behind. sure I'm pretty sure that's like almost the exact same year, and it's yeah. light, light years ahead of the Halloween tree in terms of like... Even Everything. like just motivation of the characters. Like, you really understand what Jack Skellington wants. And, and for like Watership Down, that source material, like I said, you're not, you know... It can't be done. James and the Giant Peach, though, mm. later years later, same self animation, same studio. It's it, it's a, it's a younger original content. You know, it's a it's a storybook. It's a picture it's book. If you're about. if you're using animation to do uh, Watership Down, I mean that novel had been around for a while. Well, there's a few exceptions. Yeah, but so when is it that? So you can tell with the graphic novel when um, Mouse One wins the Pulitzer Prize. That's when the graphic novel is considered like, yeah. you know, vehicle for. Yeah, that's what I'm. Yeah, that's does a lot yeah, of stuff in the seventies, right. and yeah. I can't think I of think a much. Because right. by example. by the early eighties, when he's doing Mighty Mouse, I remember watching it with my mom, and we were, and she didn't watch Saturday cartoons, and I was in college. Yeah. And I wasn't really watching Saturday cartoons, but we both watched Mighty Mouse because it was something yeah. that he was doing stylistically. We're like, what is this? this is and he did like Wizards and Felix the right. Cat, and those are very much oh, for, for adults. Yeah. They were not a kid's... But I think stylistically, so not just subject-wise, that's yeah, yeah. the difference. So so again, to go back to the 70s example, like I think that matters that you don't have to do Watership Down as animation. Ooh, I mean, they are animals, and... Clay's animation would have been weird, um, but 
they're they're choosing to do this for i mean it is a complex um, story it's sad and everything but um what, what i guess what i'm trying to get at is what are the milestones that lead up to i'll say i think it's the simpsons where people are like animation is just a way of telling a story it's not that you're telling a story just for kids because it's animated i think it happens sooner but there are mo there are moments they're not part of a trend yes and then i think also to I say add to that no 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 I, I believe you're right and i believe although i will say for in watership down's case as a studio you're looking at cost and you're looking at just how do we pull this off animate it and they know that with the history of with the, with what's attached to this book and everything that people will see it mm-hmm. and with it's almost like and i know it's your favorite movie hunchback of notre dame <laughs> I love this movie, having recently seen it. I do too. This is not a movie that Disney was like, I, they were clearly, they let Alan Menken do what he wanted, and then they checked in on the, like 75% of the way through, and they're like, oh, what the hell did we let happen? Put the gargoyles in. This is not for kids, or like their, it's not for their kid to, to go back to all of this. I, I do think that what, something like Watership Down is like one of those exceptions where it's kind of like, okay, we're going to make a movie now like Sky Captain. We'll just try it in black and white. Like, we'll just try it. There wasn't the trends, there, these moments, these milestones you're talking about, yes, they do happen. And I think now, if you look at where we are as people, like this, I would say the millennials are growing up being exposed to animation and then millennials being, you know, given the ability to be showrunners to grow up with The Simpsons, which absolutely, I, I credit The Simpsons as bringing adults into the animation fold completely. I mean, that being so, said, I mean, the Flintstones were... Um, they had a laugh track. Well, no, the Flintstones were um, like 8 p.m. slot for years. This is true. They weren't. Uh, it was intended as like a family program, like a true yeah, family. Yeah, yeah, Like the whole family could sit right. down and enjoy this thing. It wasn't yeah. a Love Saturday it. morning cartoon. Exactly. So it was for adults and kids. Yeah. And Disney obviously was like that for a while. I think we're we're all trying to be like, when did when did animation become like so culturally predominant? Like it's been there all along. Where it's for kids, it's for adults. It's it's a serious medium to tell serious stories. Whether it's Watership Down or or even The Hobbit. When Rankin Bass did The Hobbit, like I know, I know, like it's 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 crude. But I remember having read The Hobbit and then seeing the animation. I was like, wow, this is pretty close to the you know, like that's pretty good. Like I I don't know, it worked (laughs) for me. And I think that might be the earliest where mm-hmm. it was not adult, like totally adult, the way Bakshi or Banksy, Bakshi, yeah. Can yeah. Be. Yeah. Bakshi can be, but it it felt not for children. And you've got things like um, yeah, Belladonna of, of Sadness, which is a Japanese mm-hmm. film from the seventies, and it's a, it's very fairy tale like, but it's about a woman that's raped by a king, mm-hmm. and it's trippy as fuck. It's mm-hmm. so weird. And we finally figured out me and a friend are gonna watch it with Kill Bill because it's like a whole revenge thing, oh. and it's gonna work real, real well. <laughs> Again, though, going back to Hunchback, there, but there, a lot of their art form and their, their cultural art form stayed a style that was extremely similar to their anime style. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like their, their woodblock print style. Yeah. They were already doing more like, not cartoonized, but I guess it's the best way, like they weren't seeking out realism in their art as much. Mm-hmm. So when they, when like animation, the theater, yeah. and so when animation came around, they were just taking their illustrated storytelling styles, which talked about all sorts of adult things and going, okay, we put it over here now. Mm-hmm. Although a lot mm-hmm. of anime comes like the way anime characters look like mm. is actually a weird hybrid between their traditional woodblock style and like Betty Boop. 
because that's what they were getting and if you look at betty yeah when you see betty Mm. boop it makes like totally weird sense i remember watching speed racer before i'd go to school at like six in the morning and the monkey and i'm like this is so not fucking funny and i was angry but i could not not watch it because it was so unlike anything else yeah it was bad and then the monkey would make some stupid joke and they would laugh at it and i'd be like he's not funny like i was so that was me with the roadrunner i wanted the roadrunner to die the most horrific death yeah Oh, I wanted I to snap Wiley its Cody, neck. Cody. There's no fury like a kid who's like, this isn't funny. Oh my God. Stop laughing. Like, <gasps> hated Tom and Jerry. Oh my God. When Jerry Particularly like... hated Tom. Oh, really? I hated Jerry. I hated the mouse. Okay, so I have two questions. <laughs> I like that because I was thinking about this one and I always love this game. Which cartoon character do you like think you're most similar to or empathize with? And I'll say, I definitely think I'm Daffy Duck. I'm like kind of the <laughs> asshole. Like that it stands on the outside a little bit that there's always somebody a little more popular and likable and I'm the one that's like (laughs) (laughs) I always liked Daffy Duck as a kid like I empathized with him a little too much and what he was trying to do and it just fails and you're like oh like I see it dude I see it (laughs) and like later so there's two incarnations of Daffy Duck not the earlier one where he's literally Daffy and Mm. zany and just kind of like a chaos demon Mm. like the later (laughs) stuff the later stuff like Duck Amuck like I feel for him and Duck Amuck so much he's just trying to do his bit and this asshole artist is just changing shit around and like (laughs) You mean I? I mean besides Lisa Simpson. <laughs> I think that's every. I think every woman I mean, in the U.S. can say I'm a little bit Lisa. Simpson. Because I, to be honest, I was definitely when I watched um, Scooby Doo. It was I. You know, it was a Daphne was the redhead. So yeah, right. Velma was the nerd. Velma was the nerd. Yeah, I always saw myself as Velma, but not like explicitly. Other than that, um, between Velma, I guess, and Lisa, I don't know. Well, that's a tough one because I don't. Mm, I mean, aspirationally, what's her name in Eon Flux? Like totally. Oh, yeah. Eon like, Flux, like the that. Yes, yeah. that that right. That is her name. Yeah, aspirationally. <laughs> oh my God, she was like the coolest. Um, yeah, that would be my like aspirational self, but probably Velma. <laughs> <laughs> I like that dichotomy because their hair is almost you can sort of see this morph of like Velma's little short bob to like Eon Flux. And now I want to see the weird fan art version where you combine those two things. Growing up, I was absolutely the closest to the genie. Like, because I was random and doing voices all the time and so weird. And outside of like the context of you understanding me as a person, I don't make sense in normal society. Uh, definitely trying to do a lot of magical things. Absolutely just like, oh, you're going to do this? Well, I'm not going to do it normally. But as I grow up, I feel I've become more of my favorite cartoon, which is Darkwing Duck, <laughs> where he's he kind of has his shit, his shit together, but like everything else in his world is like not... If only the rest of the world had the standards that like yeah. he just needs to survive by and do his job by, yeah. I feel more closely to Darkwing Duck than anything. I, I, I will say also, like the adult version, version would be more the brain than pinky yeah where like like you were saying like i just want something to go right once and it never goes my way you know that kind of it's like hey pinky what do you know do you know we're gonna do tonight pinky uh i think oh i think i do but where are we gonna find pants big enough to fit a rhino and you're like what no i like your enthusiasm but no (laughs) aiden um 
That's a really like tricky one. I haven't actually thought about this ever. Um, I would say sometimes I feel, and I hate this about myself, sometimes I feel like Sebastian from <laughs> The Little Mermaid because he's just worried about every goddamn thing. Um, he's just like, oh, should we do this? Oh, my name is Mr. Overthink. But then sometimes I feel like uh, Tommy Pickles from Rugrats because I was because I was the oldest child and I'm not I don't even know if he's the oldest is he? yeah he is. yeah There's and Dylan he just had, yeah yeah and he had this like sense of like duty that the other kids didn't really have and he like had to deal with like Angelica being an asshole but like he had to be the bigger one and not be like mean to her back and like he everyone else could lose their shit but he couldn't like he was the one that's like oh, i don't even uh, his, never look up by the way. way there are videos on the internet that talk about how the theories I, are so creepy how sad angelica's life is and yes. how sad hilda They're from so hey arnold's weird. life is if you actually examine like their scenario yeah just how sad those little girls lives are you, you're like this should never have happened because like Hilda's from a broken home it seems like her mom's probably an alcoholic yeah. like of course she's like a bully and has yeah. a weird crush on a boy and you know does acts out in all these ways because her home life is shit yeah. and like Angelica's parents ignore her like mm-hmm. of course she's going to be a mean kid like she has nobody to pay attention to her she's a weird creepy doll Cynthia I think it was named Cynthia yeah, but like I watched yeah. two videos on these girls and I was like oh god that's too dark So this is the sad part, and then we'll wrap it up. But I always like knowing what movies, what animated film, like, makes you cry. Like, the the one you sort of remember. Or if you're like me, you watch to cry. Like, you watch on repeat, because you're like, I need this moment right now. Hmm. And I credit both of these movies we watched. Hmm. Because I cry at every movie. I cry all the time, too. Uh, Iron Giant, hands down, I cannot get through that movie without crying can't do it oh my god saddest movie of all time i've only seen it once i will never be able to watch it again but dumbo the original oh yeah. Oh, just even thinking about it it was when when they take i mean it is it is our current immigration policy yeah you're absolutely right it is soul destroying to even watch it we're good we're good just the tape just the tape but I would say that one of the saddest movies, bar none, totally changes like a 180. When you watch it, it's so weird by the end. I think you, you just, I, I think you're so desperate for, I think it's so sad when the child is taken from the mother and the reaction of the mother uh, is so convincing yeah. that you're something right has to happen. I think whoever worked on that, that would be a really fascinating podcast is to look, because they, they, they've been doing a lot of archiving of the Disney Studio early days now, mm-hmm. really understanding, well, who exactly put together the haunted house? Mm-hmm. Who did the early sketches? Who signed off on them? Who, uh, you know, revised them? Like, all of that work. Yeah. Who did the original um, layouts for Dumbo? Who came up with that particular moment? Because I'm telling you, the guys who did it, we're just like, something has to fucking go right in this movie now. And they just figured out some, they came up with a bunch of things. Mm. And that, and the, because it's not just the separation. They really build up to it by showing mm. all these babies being yeah. given to their moms by yeah. the storks and all the cuddling and love and excitement for babies, you know? Mm. And then she gets her one like weird, big eared baby, you know? So you've seen all the mothers. How much she loves her baby. I mean, and, and then you bring to the movie a little understanding of yeah. elephants being special among animals, you know? 
And I even as a kid, yeah, it's not like I had a well developed theory okay. about that, but you know, you know a little bit about your basic animal shapes. And <laughs> that was an animal shape that was important and just like the most devastating thing you could possibly imagine. Not just happens in a moment, like it is a sequence and it is utterly devastating. I think whoever did that movie had a really deep understanding of it's almost like it loss. To them. Yeah, no shit. You know? Like it yeah. is so convincing and then they just are like, oh my god, something has to go right in this movie, or we just can't deal with it. You know, and that was the they movie. Back away from their own emotions. Yeah, I think so. I do. Because That's why it's so weird. It's so weird. It's just a no, bunch of weird things hard. that are like, you know, that just happen. And it happens, and the resolution in that happens so quickly. Mm-hmm. It's like he can fly, and then it's like, boom, on a train, going off into the sunrise. Bye, done movie. Like, And you're like, wait, what? He falls asleep drunk. He's in the tree. He's like, how'd I get up here? The girls are like, he flew up here. And then it's like, yeah, you can totally fly, dude. He goes back to the circus. Sounds like my Saturday night. (laughs) How'd I get up here? You flew up there. Oh. Knew it. Yeah. Uh, And then they like, and then he flies (laughs) at the circus and it's like, everybody loves him. Mom's out of prison. Done. Like, movie ends. Mom's out of prison. Like, nowadays you would have a sequence where like he saved a kid or something, you know, like some real resolution. Right, right, right. But instead he's like a moneymaker so his mom can come out of prison. Yeah, that's, she's... She's a little bit treated like Oprah Winfrey is in The Color Purple. Mm. She, she, Kill him, Dad. That would actually be interesting. Dumbo in The Color Purple. Oh, my God. Did you give yours? No, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Um, not to be that, like, asshole who, like, doesn't answer the question. I'm, like, not trying to be different. It's just hard for me to, because I'm like you, Mel, where you just cried everything. But there are certain specific moments in animated films that I will just watch that one scene mm. because I think that even if the movie itself is not that great, like I mentioned Tarzan, for example, like that movie is far from perfect. I mean, it's entertaining and it, don't get me wrong, but it's like, there's one moment when he, Tarzan and Jane first meet and it's that moment where they touch hands and Tarzan finally like sees someone like him. And it was the slowness of that scene that really grasped me. Like the slow music, the pulling off of the glove gently. And like for the first time, this man who's been like having to really fight and prove himself for the first time is just like, taking a moment to like Mm. touch hands with his own humanity like it was just this very simple scene that i really like there's also even in like clearly i'm a kid of the 90s disney but like even in beauty and the beast the famous ballroom scene Mm. sometimes like i sit there and cry because it really shifted like not only technologically was was amazing but like i don't know i think of stuff now and i'm like when like that movie kind of just celebrate like something as simple as just like a ballroom dance was a spectacle was a spectacle and was something that people like talked about after the movie and it was such a simple idea but it to me it represented so much but it was just this simple dance that happened and it's like i don't know i just i really like those simpler moments even if the movie itself is like you know well can be zany and crazy but no, that's a good answer. I think that's an answer to the first and second part of the question. I don't think Rick and I answered the second part of the question. Did you answer? What did you say? I just said to do that, like the. Um, you didn't delve into your answer. You just said it. You just said Iron Man. Oh, Iron Giant. Uh, yeah. 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 Oh. Is it like the deer scene, or is it when he thinks he's Superman? It's when he. It's when he thinks he's Superman, or what? I, see, when he I don't decides think, to identify. Yeah, he identifies as Superman. I think that's really big. That's a good one. And then also, it's either that for me or I'm a... And it's important that I state, for anyone who doesn't know this movie even exists, DuckTales Treasure of the Lost Lamp came out before Aladdin in 1990. And the reason I say this is important is because the movie Aladdin basically stole the ending of DuckTales, where I was a huge DuckTales fan. 
and I, deal. Yeah. yeah, and I think the revival is actually stellar. So for me, the the lost the lost lamp. This moment at the end where Scrooge McDuck, you know, he on the surface level you think Scrooge McDuck is greed, but it's really always more about achievement with Scrooge McDuck. But in the movie Tales of the Lost Lamp, he faces like a like a cartoon of a cartoon villain who wants the lamp for wishes and ultimate wealth and greed, etc. Which is what you think Scrooge McDuck might be. Yes, sitting on his smog level type of money pile of money. Absolutely, he literally swims in this. But again, it's just a mirror. It's his achievement. Um, it's when he's he's he want he gets the lamp. He gives these you know he's got three wishes. And the second wish is return Duckburg back to where it was after the villain put the infinite wish amulet on the, the lamp. And then he's just like, I've had enough of the wishing. I wish for this genie to be free. Before Aladdin did it. It was before Aladdin. And so if you watch DuckTales and you're a kid, you think Scrooge McDuck is greedy. You think that's what that is. As you get older, you're like, it's more achievement. But this is a man who's like, I could have literally the – I could – have the achievement on the surface of being greedy things like now nah, I'm going to take this away from everybody even myself like that's as a character development that's huge that's really huge and when I think of like deeper me deeper things that like I feel I watch where I'm like I want to feel good about myself if I did something terrible or like maybe I misunderstood something and Aladdin did it out of a sense of like friendship yeah. and like his sense of goodness Scrooge was doing it as like more like this is good for everybody else. Yeah, because he when he does it though they animate his face to feel bad like he's another nephew because he's seeing this he's the same age as Huey Dewey and Louie and Webby. Yeah, he's the same age and he kind of looks at him like a kid because he tri- they trick him for a while they think this is another friend of ours. Yeah, yeah, they dress him up. So he can't. So he's like he gets in this mindset of like oh well once he finds out he's the genie he's like well I'm gonna make these wishes now and he's like I, not only can I not treat another person like this no one should treat a person like this and no one should have this power so goodbye to those wishes. And I thought that was really sweet. I, I love that moment. Yeah, I know I'm gonna watch that one. I think with um, Indiana Jones. Yep. Um, I think, one. I think, I forget who wrote that one down. We were, we we're also trying to find one for the, the Chipmunks movie, which I'm not excited for. I do not think it will hold <laughs> up. Oh, yeah. um. <laughs> He's just kind of like, he just keep leaning into the microphone over there. Like. I like the way it smells. <laughs> okay. Like what's going on over there? Um, so I'm going to say thank you all. And we're going to close this out and... Thank you all, and thank you to Mr. My Cat, who did Mr. not make too much noise. He was a good boy. He's my Halloween cat. Have a good time, and we'll do this again. Music.